The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, I'm pretty excited this morning. I'm just going to tell you right up front. Chapter 17 is my favorite chapter in all the book. Now, you may say, well, wait, Craig. I mean, what about 19 and 20, the death, the burial, the resurrection? Well, nothing can top that. But when you get into chapter 17, (laughs) here's what's so great. Because moments before Jesus is arrested, he is spending the time praying for you and me. I mean, can can you just fathom that? The creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one who took on man, came, died, rose again, defeated the grave, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But he took the time before the arrest and everything went into motion to pray for you and I. Now, by way of introduction, I want us to go back to chapter 16, and I want to get a running start into here. Because Jesus had been speaking in parables, and he he was not plain in his speech, as as we read in verse uh, 25. He said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. But now the disciples are starting to get it. It's starting to become clear. And there's an air of confidence with the disciples. And in beginning in John 16, verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So what they're saying is, okay, we're getting it. Now we're getting it. Okay. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Do you believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Now, let that sink in for a minute. These disciples who are getting it, Jesus says, No, 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 no. Are you sure you believe? Because the hour is now, and you're going to scatter to your own homes. Now, you know what I think is significant about that? They didn't even go back to the clubhouse and talk amongst themselves. They went to their own homes because they didn't want to be identified with Christ out of fear, and they didn't want to be identified with each other. And you know, it came to my mind as I was processing this this week. How often do we take Christ as our Savior? And then when the rug gets pulled out, we run away. We run from church. We run from Bible reading. We run from fellowship with other Christians. I want to get alone. God, you saved me. Where are you? And we're just like the disciples. Now, Jesus says, you leave me alone, but I am not alone because the Father is with me. But notice he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you're going to have tribulation. Guys, listen to me. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's not always going to be your best life now. It's not always going to be little more faith, and I can beat this thing. 
No, you're going to have tribulation. But here's the key. I've told you this, that your peace would be in me. You see, the world we live in is full of sin. It is a sin-drenched world under the curse of sin. And Jesus is telling him right out front, no pretend, no good stories, no, hey, it's all going to be cool. No, you're going to have tribulation. But here's the key. In me, you'll have peace. Because your peace is in me, not the world. And he finalizes that in chapter 16 by saying, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That person you placed all your stock in, the person you loved has walked away. And Jesus says, I've already overcome that. The bank account that dries up and you don't know where you're going to turn, Jesus said, I've already overcome that. Those struggles in health and whatever it might be, whatever it is in your life that's gripping you, Jesus says, I've already overcome that. Your peace is in me, not the world. So he says all this to them, and he finalizes this very powerfully. And then we move into chapter 17, and he begins by saying, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So he has just driven these truths right down into them, powerfully. And he walks away, and he gets on his knees, and he looks to heaven, and he prays. In chapter 17, there are three aspects of this prayer. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself in his glorification. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. And here's where it gets good. Because in verses 20 to 26, he prays for you and me. All of that done right before he's taken prisoner. He's not praying for his protection. He's not praying that everything works out good for him. He is praying for all of us that the glory would be strengthened in each one of us. So look at verse 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is the eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Sidebar here, if you ever want a clear, simple, powerful definition of salvation, it's verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom I have sent. The key to salvation is not uttering some simple prayer. The key to salvation is not saying the right words and getting the right understanding. The key to salvation is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. It is a relationship. It is an understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior and knowing that Jesus is that Savior. 
knowing that when he came and died on the cross, he came to give up his life for you and me. And when you know that and accept that gift, you become a child of God. And that's what true salvation is. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I ask the question as I do every week at the end, but I'll ask it now. Do you know God? Do you have a relationship with the Heavenly Father? He longs to walk with you and to be with you and to fellowship with you. Back in the garden before sin ever happened, Jesus would come and he would walk with Adam and Eve. And they had a wonderful relationship. Then sin broke that relationship. Now, when you accept him as your savior, that relationship is rekindled and now you and I can walk every day with Jesus. We can pray to him and know he hears us. He communicates through his word and that relationship is there. Friends, that's what true salvation is. And that's what we need to keep in mind. So this great prayer by the Lord Jesus Christ given in chapter 17 is the simplest of prayers. In fact, John Calvin in his commentary calls it baby talk because it's simple, it's clear, and the newest of Christians can understand it. This prayer contains the simplest of sentences, though the ideas are profound. And as I said earlier, it's broken down into three segments. The first five verses have to do with Jesus praying for glory in himself. Verses 6 through 19 have to do with him praying for the disciples and those that are right there with him then. And then verse 20 to 26 is about you and me. So we could easily, this is our, for those of you who are visiting, this is our 71st week in John. We could easily be here for 71 more weeks. In fact, uh, John MacArthur was asked about chapter 17, and he said, oh, that's a 40-week study. But don't worry, we're not going to be here that long. But it is so full when you dig through it. And we soon realize that this prayer should be called the, the true Lord's Prayer. The prayer that begins, Our Father who art in heaven in Matthew chapter 6, should more be called the Disciples' Prayer, because he asked them how to pray. But it, is, it, it has properly been designated the high priestly prayer because in this prayer, Jesus is interceding for you and me. Jesus literally pours out his heart for you and me. Now, here's what's so critical for United Grasp. Because Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who came and died, is the one who is taking the time before it all breaks loose to pray for us. So whatever is going on in your life right now, he's covered it. And not only that, as we've been seeing in John, he went back to heaven to prepare a place for us because he's coming back for us. He came back for Roger on Thursday, and he's with him. And he's going to come back for us either through death or the resurrection. But if you know him as Savior, he's coming back for you. And then he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession. So the prayers that you make that the Holy Spirit takes with groanings we can't understand, he's sitting there interceding on our behalf. So he's actively involved where you are in everything you're going through. He has clear and complete understanding. There is a victory 
not just for eternity, but for today. Because you are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8, 37. Now, this prayer should be to us something of what the burning bush was to Moses. Because we're about to enter holy ground. Because as Jesus talked to Moses, he's praying for you and me. This is a spectacular chapter. So let's look first of all is that Jesus, his prayer for himself. In, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying that the Father would glorify Jesus as a result of which Jesus would in turn glorify the Father. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may be glorified in you. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's two aspects to this glory I want us to see. First of all, number one, the glory he had here on earth. And in understanding Christ's petition, we're immediately confronted with a problem because the word glory is often very hard to pin down and fully understand. This passage in itself is a perfect illustration of that. For, for example, Jesus, Jesus posed a, or possessed a certain glory with God the Father before the incarnation. Secondly, he says that the glory was God's glory. Jesus did not possess this glory during his year's incarnation because here he prays that that original glory would be given back to him. And yet there is a sense that he did possess glory while he was here on earth because he said he completed the work that he was given to do. Uh, We see this right away in John chapter 2, verse 11, where he changed water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. Uh, This was the beginning of his miracles. And in each miracle, he revealed his glory, and this was what led the disciples to believe in him. So, What are we to understand about this word glory? When you use the word of a king or a divine being, it obviously meant uh, the ultimate in praise and renown. For example, Psalm chapter 8 and verse 10, or verse 8 and 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, Selah. Now, these verses show us that the Bible's application of the word glory to God and the glory of God was obviously linked to his attributes. Love, truth, holiness, grace, power, knowledge, immutability, and so forth. And was therefore truly glorious. In this way, God's glory consisted of his intrinsic worth or character, to use human terms. Thus, all that can be known of God is expressed in his glory. Now, at this point, we can understand uh, one use of the word glory in Christ's position. uh, For he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, he is saying that by his ministry, 
he had revealed the essential characteristics of the Father by completing the work he was given to do. And it's one way of saying that if you have seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So the way he glorified God and the way he showed the character of God was by completing the work that God gave him to do. Now, now can I just pause here for a second and let me address directly you teachers who teach children. You Awana workers. You Sunday school teachers who teach adult classes. You Bible study leaders. You small group leaders. You deacons, elders. Your responsibility is to reveal the character of God by the work he's given you to do. That is your calling. In fact, it is the calling for every one of us here today, but particularly I say it to those in leadership because our whole goal is to be unified in presenting the character of God. That's what moves people. Just let that process for a minute in your head. So God's character must be seen through you. Are are you following me here? It's not you they should see because it's not about you. They should be seeing Christ and his character in you. The Apostle Paul was probably the greatest example of this. You couldn't touch this guy. Paul, quit preaching or we're going to throw you in prison. Hallelujah, preach on. Okay, we're throwing you into prison. All right, witness to the jailer. Witness to the, the prisoners, leading people to Christ. If you don't stop it, we're going to kill you. Uh, okay, well, um, it's glory to be here, but to be happy for the bodies, to be present with God, hey, okay, bring it on. You couldn't touch him because everything about him radiated the character of God. So when the bottom drops out on you, do you still desire to glorify God? Or do you want to run home and shut yourself in? Because Paul and all his persecutions and his shipwrecks and his whippings and his imprisonments, everything that happened to this man, good or bad, was another opportunity to reflect the character of God. And it just makes so clear what 